Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at VMO Education. VMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? VMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how VMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. And now, on to education trends. Tom Delaney began his career as an engineer in the emerging world of tech, but eventually he decided to bring his skills into the education world. After serving as a CIO in various technical verticals, Tom joined the NYU Law School as Associate Dean of Technology and Chief Information Officer. Eventually, Tom rose up to the role of Vice President of Global Technology at NYU, and in that role, he helped turn NYU into one of the first and most successful global universities. Now, Tom works as a consultant helping other higher education institutions embark on their own digital journeys. Here, Tom talks about how he was able to merge the worlds of technology and education to create a whole new way for students to learn and become not just global students, but global citizens. And he dives into all the ways education can continue to grow and adapt to a changing landscape. Thank you again for joining us on EdTrends. First of all, can you introduce yourself? Give us your name, your title, where you work, what you do, kind of the the lowdown. Great. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Hillary. My name's Tom Delaney. Currently, I'm an independent consultant working in higher ed. About two years ago, I retired. I spent 16 years at New York University. First, I was the chief information officer for NYU School of Law, which is always pretty much a preeminent top five law school in the country. And I basically was their first CIO and did a bunch of work there. And then for the last, uh, from 2009 through 2016, I was the chief global technology officer for the whole university. And basically the mission there, I, I went to work for Johnson Sexton, who was the president of the university. His vision there was to take the largest private university in the United States, where we have 24 colleges, and he wanted to basically change the paradigm and really create a, a new category of global universities. And the, the idea was for us to, and we can talk more about it later, but the idea was to transform it there. So I, I, I worked there from 2009 to 2016. John retired in 2016, and myself and several other on his team have all left to do independent work in, in higher ed. Since we built the global university <laughs> and it's working, the builders left, and now the operators who can probably do operating better than we builders uh, <laughs> came in and are doing the job, but it was a wonderful experience. So that's really, that's on top of 30 years of being either a CIO or a consultant in many different vertical markets, which led up to this. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you first about your education background and also about your professional background, because you have an engineering background and a tech background. So tell me a little bit about those. Sure. Well, if you ask anybody who's my age, and I just turned 60, um, <laughs> well, did you go to school for IT? Well, there was no IT. It wasn't a thing. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. So I graduated from RPI Rensselaer, which is upstate New York, with my bachelor's in 1980. My junior year, probably in 78, they started a curriculum in computer science. Prior to that, it was basically you were either a, an electrical, a civical, a, a civil, a mechanical 
I think they had biomedical engineering there, which was a cool thing. So I was an electrical engineer and I went for a basic thing. But when I got out in the workforce, my first job was with an aerospace firm, United Technologies, Hamilton Technology. And they were flying around and equipping black boxes on planes. And so they were basically computers that took in about 600 different sensory signals. Oh, wow. And then it got to be played back into a, a computer, a PDP. And we would take that and figure out everything from pilot performance to the mean time between failure, when it's time to replace your engine before it falls mm -hmm. out of the plane. And <laughs> so were, just a, well, you know, little things. <laughs> so you needed engineers who knew something about computers. And really, they were not graduating computer yeah. science then. So basically, I kind of backed into it from there. So my master's, which I did at night at the time, was to, to pick up all the learning about assembler and coding and <laughs> microprocessor, everything I needed to know about computer science. And of course, everything I needed to do then is completely different. Right. But that's how I backed into it. So that was, you know, I was on that seam going from analog to digital digitization. And how did you then transition to higher ed? Because obviously what you're doing is important and it seems challenging and like you got all the education for it. So why did you then transition from being on the technical side of things to the higher ed side of things and kind of merging those two together? Well, that's interesting. I, I didn't like just do it. So I, mean, I, I graduated with my bachelor's in 80 and did master's at nighttime to 83. But basically from, from the early 80s, really through 9-11, mm -hmm. if everybody, a, a date that everyone can talk to, I worked probably in 20 vertical markets. So I, I did distribution. I did medical surgical distribution and did a lot of what's called B2B, uh, right. computer yep. science, hospitals to order from distributors. And mm -hmm. we would work with the manufacturers and do all that. I did some early work in that area and tied it in with Baxter. Our company got sold to Microbiomedics, which went to Henry Schein. And then I went on to other things. And then I said, let me be a CIO since I've yeah. kind of been doing that. And I did that for a really an interesting holding company, which had everything from an early internet consumer groceries, like a, <laughs> you know, like a, a, a company like that, to very all sorts of different crazy things from cosmetics to Herbalife type of knockoffs and <laughs> everything else. But I got to really apply a lot of what I did in my earlier years, which was at the back end, financial systems, ordering systems, rebates, distribution. But I learned a bunch of other industry-specific things along the time. And then from there, doing other CIO jobs and consulting, it was always adapting that baseline of learning you had to learning the business problems. And it was really then that I really got my education of, you know, really listening to what the customer pain points were and what they wanted to do, spending 80% you know, of your time trying to get your arms around that and sort that out. And then the technology is really the easy part, backing away to come in and add value with technology. Right. So I did all of that in a lot of different ways, but I always jumped opportunistically. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I'll do this and that. After 9-11, a lot of the business we were doing, I had, I had two companies, one in Ireland and one in Finland. I, I was a position in both of those companies. And we were doing an early version of document assembly. We were a, an Adobe signature partner. So I worked with the Warnocks who okay. started Adobe. And at that time, we were doing, this is long before HTML5 and ways where web, web pages can basically build the stuff right. on the fly. You needed servers to do all of that. And we would, we would build things that, for instance, you'd go to like an early, like a Priceline or a, or a travel agency and you would get a trip and you'd get cars and hotels. And we were the back end that would create the nice itinerary for yeah. you and the proposals. <laughs> so I did a lot of that work. And then what happened is that at 9-11, all the companies in the U.S. who were 
investing in those realized, oh my God, we're spending all of our IT doing this top line digitization stuff when really we should be sort of like Cantor Fitzgerald where, you know, it was a terrible what happened there. But the one thing that survived the Cantor Fitzgerald is they had thought about building data centers right. in New Jersey. Everything failed over perfectly and their business right, kept Right, it just going. kept going. Amazing. So basically anybody who was a CIO worth their salt in front of their board was like, what are we doing for redundancy? What are we doing for resiliency? So I was kind of out of work in North <laughs> America. We were doing very well in Europe, my European partners. So at that point, I sold out my interest. I did well. I sold out because I knew I wasn't going to shine my shoes and sell product in the U.S. while it was being developed in Finland and in Ireland. And when I said, I, I paused for a second. I got enough from that where my big motivator then was, you know, how do I pay for this house I can't afford and feed these <laughs> kids who eat a lot, you know, and <laughs> private schools coming. And I said, for once in my life, let me think about, let me try and engineer my life. Yeah. And really, what do I really feel passionate about? One thing I felt passionate about at that point was I had a son who was 15, a daughter who was 12. I knew they were going to be thinking about colleges soon. And I wanted my wife and I to have something better to offer than, oh, college. We went to one of those 20 years ago. <laughs> Basically, I said, what I really need is a network in higher ed. So I really said, I'm by come hell or high water, I'm going to find my way into higher ed. And at the time, you know, to, you know at that point, I was pushing 40. All the headhunters said, listen, Tom, we can get you big jobs in distribution, right. in document assembly. The in this already and did. Right. But if you're going to higher ed now, you'll have to start in a community college and you're not going to make a lot. You're going to, you know, you're, you're 10 years too late. You should have thought, it, you should have had this revelation when you're 30, not 40. But I got very lucky. Uh, NYU School of Law, Ricky Revez, who's an MIT graduate, really wanted to push technology. And he yeah. was thinking about distance learning and other things. And he wanted someone who was really from the private sector. So I just sort of lightened in a bottle. I got very lucky and I was very fortunate with no references in higher ed <laughs> to get in there. And what we really did there at the, at the law school was, and I did it completely because I wanted a network. My plan was a five years and out plan. I'm going to do this for five years, build my network, go out and make some big money elsewhere. So my five-year plan lasted for, um, <laughs> you know, almost 16 years. But, uh, and it still goes on today uh, in the gig economy. But basically, what we did was we, st we took an ELLM in taxation law, which was a big cash cow where we would bring students in from all over the world, LLM students in. But we kept making the classes bigger and bigger and bigger because it was generating a lot of money. But the quality was going down right. because, you know, we were making it yeah. too big. So what we basically said is, you know what we're going to do is we're going to put cameras in the classroom. And we're going to have digital editors who can kind of cut it up so it'll look interesting. We'll have people in there indexing the class. We can build a little outline of the course and tie it in. We're going to ask the faculty to do nothing more but maybe wear a clean shirt because <laughs> we're going to have cameras on you. Teach the way you're going to teach. And it was a very early version of distance learning. Yeah. And what we did was we just basically created online sessions right next to the live sessions. We made it off-brand at the beginning because they were worried, what if we tarnish our brand? Right. So we would syndicate it, we, we sent it to other. But ultimately, we folded it into the law school, and that's what we did. And the goal there was we told the faculty, the reason we're doing this is the dollars that we bring in through this, we're going to offset and we're going to lower decrease the size of the class. So you're going to be teaching to smart students, right? and it's going to elevate you know, so we didn't really do it to make money, but we did it. it we, we used technology as a way to improve that. And in the process, we really got the attention of the whole university, how to do online things. And that was the start of it. 
What was the landscape like at the time? Like who else was doing that kind of online learning or were you kind of the first in the market to really get that going? We were the first in law at yeah. that time. There was other different schools doing it. Really, yeah, the places like when you think about the early MOOCs, the massive online courses, the things that really lend themselves well to it for kinesthetic learners where there's a lot of problem solving is mostly like computer languages or now, you know, the famous machine learning courses right. you see it of Coursera. Those are the types of, it was really more the uh, STEM, the STEM world, not so much the liberal arts and all that area, which is really the the big C that NYU right. really swims, swims in. in. You know, I love to say I'm an engineer at NYU, but I mean, let's face it, when you think about NYU, you're thinking about Tisch, yep. you're thinking about Steinhardt, right? You're thinking about Gallatin, the cool things that they do, right. multidiscipline. You know, you're the, you know, in the, in the professional, you've got law and you've got medicine, you've got dental, but you don't really think about, although Courant is the number one for mathematics, yeah. but in terms of applied math, NYU, so NYU, when I graduated from high school, you, you had your stretch schools, you know, all the IVs that <laughs> yep. you don't get into, or I, I don't get into. I, I didn't say, Okay, enjoy, we love a club, you know. But, you know, then the schools, you have a good chance, a few safety schools, yep. somewhere below a safety school back then was NYU because they took anyone from New York. (laughs) They were so close to bankruptcy then that they sold their engineering school in the Bronx to stay afloat. So later on, the the full circle is later on when we all of a sudden form partnerships, both in China and in the United Arab Emirates, to basically build a global university. We said, oh my God, we need STEM. So that we were able to, very fortunate enough to purchase Brooklyn Polytech, which is now NYU Poly. So it's, you know, so now it's a phenomenal engineering school. But at that time, basically we were getting into online in an area where most of the other online things going on, and I'm talking about the early 2000s, like 2004, 2005, were in STEM, science technology, you know, areas, which really was a, sort of an area that NYU wasn't in. So it was kind of a lot of uncharted territory we were getting into at that time. Did you know that the tech world would be able to merge the way it has with the education world? Because now they're so linked together. When you started, it was very new. So So, what were your expectations on how it would So my expectations when I went into higher ed, besides my, remember, it's a five-year and out plan, (laughs) was I approached it almost like every other vertical market. And I think I've done a little bit better job over the years since then to listen more and, and, and to problem solve. But I was starting to get that burgeoning skill at the time. But really, my preconceived motion, notion coming in was this NYU, first of all, it's a, it's a $2.5 billion operation. It's the largest private school. The student information system there, which for those of you, you know, basically the thing that allows you to set up your curricula, chart your courses, you do your course planning and your transcripts and all those services. Our student information system was older than our freshmen. So that's how old it was. So we needed to integrate a student information system, a new financial system, a new human resource system. We needed to pull all those things together, leapfrog three generations, because what we had really wasn't being serviced anymore. It was so old. And we wanted to do it in the cloud. We could see the cloud was coming. And we needed it to work in a global environment because we were going to basically build a mall. So Macy's (laughs) at one end, Lord & Tails at the other end. Our malls were going to be... NYU, at the point we had finally won the deal. So NYU, Abu Dhabi at one end of the mall, and NYU, Shanghai at the other end of the mall. On the top of the mall, the brand was New York University. We would admit students through China, through the United Arab Emirates and New York. Once you came in, here's the beautiful thing about it. 
all of those course catalogs for undergrad at NYU in New York with, the, with all the colleges was available to any of those students. And when you come in, basically it's an NYU degree. It's not, you know, one of these executive ed in China. Right, yeah, it yeah. was an NYU degree. With all of the with backing of the, with it. Right. And if you decided, for instance, as a student in political science, I'm going to cobble together 18 credits and go to NYU in Berlin mm-hmm. and spend my spring of my junior year in Berlin, you do it. The hardest part for you is to get your passport. We do everything else. It hits your transcript. You know, you, you get your bursar bill. It's not like you're doing transfer credits or anything crazy. Yeah. It's just, it's one big school. So why is it important? Do you think that NYU and schools in general, I guess more so now become more global and become more accessible and become more able to serve students in that way? Yeah. So the reason we became global was because we were the largest private university. But in terms of research, really research is where it's at because there's really two ways to continue to differentiate yourself and be strong enough fiscally to bring in the best faculty, which then in turn brings in the best students as you elevate things. And the best researchers for that matter, you know, is you need really strong research programs with grants coming in and you need a really strong endowment. But again, as great as NYU is then, and John did a great job. He did it at the law school first, bringing in great faculty, and that brought in the students and it elevated it. And then he went to the university, did the same thing. He cut out areas where, you know, that were marginal, funneled more into faculty, and he raised it. But he got it to the point where he wasn't going to get, I mean, okay, you look at Tish, we have Spike Lee, you know, and we've got a couple, we're not going to really get that much more star power. (laughs) We really had marquee people everywhere. But we we were still very tuition-driven, and we weren't going to really march much higher than where we were, you know, in the in the 15 to 16 to 20 in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Right, the rankings. We weren't going to continue to march up because we were really tuition-bound and we had no endowment. So what John very brilliantly said is, well, let's let's create a new league we're going to be in. We're going to be in the league of global universities. And now he he didn't do it just so he could do better rankings. He also realized the world is going global. Yeah. And we need to be able to do that. But really, when we first got into it, I feel it was really to differentiate ourselves. And it was a great strategy. But really what happened as we did it and started to build it, it really became, because we understand we were having these conversations 2005, 2006, right. you know, a decade ago, more than a decade ago. I, I've been saying a decade ago now for four <laughs> years, Hillary. Yeah. But basically, Everybody thinks about global citizenry now, you know, social networks. I mean, maybe your millennials got a little bit into it, but now you get to your Gen Zs. We go through all these. They're growing up with with rattles, with, you know, iPhones on them. And the idea of being able to collaborate and and things translate and people work together, you really need the global skill set and the global perspective. And, you know, the, the, the whole idea of globalization you know, there's ebbs and tides, and we can get into research networks and talk about great things we did as we globalized to bring China research in with North America, because we built these vast research networks right. that tie together. Now we're a lot of a little bit in a contentious mode where everyone's looking at the research and we're looking at intellectual property and all that. But it's a pendulum that will always swing back and forth, you know. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at global education and you, you look at businesses, everything is a global business now. Right. You need to be able to operate globally. And it's a set of social 
skills, and it's really the optics of your viewpoint of how you're going to work and how you're going to behave when you're working in another country. That's a difficult thing for Americans to do. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I think, than the other way around, to be, you know, like a guest right. in a country. To but assimilate also, and... Right, but also to assert what my values are. If we're going to get into this and this is going to be the value prop, this is what we bring to the table, but we expect certain things. For our case, when we went into China and we went into the United Arab Emirates, we said we want total academic freedom, which means total access to the internet, which is a big ask. Right. But we did it going in, and we were able to work with the governments to get what we need for our students. That's very different than showing up, starting a school, and jumping up and down and saying, we, look want, us, yeah. look, we, we, want, we want academic freedom. You really need to lay that out up front. At the end of the day, you need to be listening very closely and really understanding the culture and doing things in a way that you behave like you're a guest in that country. And I think that students pick up those skills as they're stu global students. And I think that when they leave and they en enter companies that have a global dimension, it's more than just how to get the passports and how do I extend my visa and how right. do I travel from <laughs> an Arab country to Tel Aviv? You know, It's more than the logistics of moving around. It's really how to behave as a global citizen. I think that global education now, a lot, of, a lot of universities are heading in that direction. It's a very expensive thing to do. The barrier of entry to get into it is difficult. And I think that things look really great for NYU in the future because now they're starting to build research and start PhD programs. And from that small beginning of, of undergrad doing it, they're now starting to build back into the research and, and, and all of that. Yeah. You talk about the barrier to entry, the access to free internet. I wanted to ask you about some of the other difficulties that you had in the process of, of making a global university. And like, what was easier than you thought it would be? What was harder than you oh, thought it would great be? question. The thing that's easiest, so as a technologist, again, as I said to you, going in, you're trying to adapt and make the big back-end business systems work. Then you start to solve the little problems at the front end, which are unique to that vertical market. Yeah. So the back-end is easiest, sort of like nobody has a whole lot of interest in, you know, your chief financial officer wants to be able to set their chart of accounts. They know how their business runs. They know the reports that the trustees and the show. Right. So you do that, right? But most of the other people don't care about that. But what they really care about is if you did a put a sale, a CRM, a customer relationship mm -hmm. system in, let's say through Salesforce and nobody gets, would get fired by putting an Oracle or a Salesforce. So you put it in, but then your marketing people, when you get into a specific industry, are very particular about how they want to interact with customers. So you yeah. put a bolt on like a Mercado or, Mercado or something like that. And the nuances of making it work specifically for a vertical can be very difficult. And people come in, either they have homegrown stuff they've built that they want to use, and you know there's no way to maintain it, or you may have a better way. You may be able to show them if we put this in and configure it, you'll get everything you want and more. Or maybe there's some things this can do that you never thought of. Those are very difficult conversations to have. By contrast, in higher ed, I felt that it was very easy, very, very easy to get students to come in and accept, you know, BYOD, bring your own device type of technologies, yeah. tying things in. Students are absolutely fearless to try anything. They're, they have tremendous energy. They'll, they'll try stuff. And if it doesn't work, they say, okay, they'll throw it away. Let's try the <laughs> next thing. Whereas in a lot of other verticals, if you try something, it doesn't work. 
to get them to re-engage, to try something else. Difficult students, they, they kind of shrug. It's like, okay. They're very they're, malleable, the students. Very malleable, and it's sort of like, it's not the end of the world. Let's try something else. They're very, so I found it very easy to get buy-in from students to try. They, they may not buy in and just blindly use whatever you yeah. want. There's no hiding when something doesn't work. It's usually <laughs> yeah. a pretty, uh, you have to have thick skin as well, too. Right. But, uh, you know, I... And I found it again and again. Right now, I've been doing some consulting at a, another college in New York and just doing a mobile strategy where you can have all of your different student experiences together with a bunch of chiclets, you know, you know, like an, an Android and iOS thing. And it's very easy to see what, what things worked and what things were bad. <laughs> but I love the idea that you don't have to waste a whole lot, expend a lot of energy to bring people to the table to try things. So you, and students will drag everyone along. They'll drag the faculty, <laughs> they'll drag the administrators, they drag everyone in. So uh, I, I was always, instead of the students being someone that I was worried about working around or another, another bias I got when I first came in as well, why bring it to the students? In four years, they're gone anyway. It's other students. But you know what? The students basically are the customer. Yeah. And a lot of faculty are there for the students. And if they hear the voice of students, they will work with it. So that's easy. So that's the easy one. So now part B of your question, what did I find very hard? What I found very hard, and it's still a challenge, is you know, there's different types of learners. I'm, I'm sure with your many podcasts, you've got your visual learners, you have your auditory learners, right. you've got your reading and writing, and then your kinesthetic who basically like to try yeah, and problem solve, touch and, touch and, and feel. Yeah. So most faculty who come in pretty much have a, a, they have a way they like to go about it. Some yep. of them come in with the PowerPoints or the slides and they're very good visually. Some, particularly in law school, I found reading and writing, it's just prose and write it back and let's echo it yep. back. From the point of view of, of kinesthetic learning, you know, some are good. Some of them will augment and do your breakout sessions in that, but it always goes back to the main lecture is one of those areas. Right. And so a couple of things. Number one, just taking that area and then being able to bring it into sections in a digitized way so that people can go online in an asynchronous way and, and consume it and do it, which is what all students want now. Yep. It is much tougher than it needs to be. It's, it's hard. The tools really aren't there. It would be very easy to get faculty to say, yes, I'm willing to take all of my 20-year-old overheads that I, I every, every summer I edit, or in some cases in, in law school, it could be just yellow paper right. with all the notes. <laughs> I'm happy to have you digitize it and let's work with it. But the pain that they have to go through is, is it can be very difficult. So we've tried all sorts of ways with academic technologists and tools to have sessions with them to limit the amount of time that they have to go in, but it's very difficult. And even to maintain the shelf life, it can be difficult. So that's part one. And part two of it is to then take what they've done, which might be primarily a visual or an audio way, and then say, we want to create alternative versions of this so that we can do adaptive learning. So yeah. if the student is better here, how can we do that? And you really can't expect the faculty to sit through and go through that whole journey over and over and right. over again. But I really think that it's difficult and there's still a challenge to be able to say to a faculty member, how can we kind of sit you down and take very little of your time? We want you, we're taking time away from you and your students and take that quiet summertime thing you did and bring it in so we can digitize it all. And then every year, maybe take another 10% of your time to keep it fresh like yeah. you do every summer, but then create alternative paths on that that you can just look at and approve hands off and it's, your, it's their baby. It's very difficult. That I think is a struggle. I think it's, you know, it's something that really needs to happen, particularly at elite universities where you're building the course around 
sort of very highly recognized right. lecturers, they're basically setting up the learning objectives and the syllabus and the courses. You know, you can break out then and, and have TAs who can maybe do some of the examples for the breakout sessions, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is coming up with, you know, different variations on what they're teaching. So if something that doesn't get it, they can iterate back and, and look at that and also do peer learning with other people. So that is an area that is still difficult, I think. It's, uh, it's being worked on by everybody, every learning management system. Everyone's looking at it. They're tying AI at the back end to assess and come up with a way to say, let's steer students more in an auditory Way. And that's great that we have those, that intelligence, there, yeah. that assessment, but you still need to create the content. Right. So it's creating that content and doing it in an efficient way that keeps your faculty engaged, I think is a challenge. You've answered this a little bit, but I want to go a little more in depth. What is one of the, the benefits that technology has added to the education space, like the biggest benefit you've seen? And what are some negatives that you've seen technology have on education and, and how people learn now? So I think that some of the benefits are... I think that the way students are wired now is students, we don't give students enough credit that they can really, the ability for them to do peer-to-peer -to, -peer to learn from each other is very strong. And you're seeing that creeping everywhere. So right. let me just take myself, I'm too old to be a student now, <laughs> but I do from time to time jump into code bases and build, you know, build scaffolding, if you will, for different yeah. programs. So back in the day when GitHub came out, <laughs> yep. Yep, that was sort of like a, your, your, an early cloud repository to put stuff in, in the cloud so that, God forbid, this thing you worked on for three weeks, your right. computer died. It's gone. <laughs> There's a repository up there. But what that has now become is a peer-to-peer -peer social repository where you can have a public repository to do, you know, in common Right, software, like all-access kind of situation. Open source. Yep. Or you can get a group of people together, pay them a little bit of money, which is why they sold for so much recently. And for a little bit of money, you can create a, a closed private network to do it. But the key is that the way people are working now is this peer-to-peer -peer collaboration way. And, it's, and, and to be able to allow people to work together, that's just a, basically the plumbing that puts the stuff there and does version control right. and allows you to check in and check out and branch and push and pull and all of that stuff. But I think that the way students are take that idea and put it into a course. In the past, like I think back from even 30 or 40 years ago, some of the most memorable courses I had were things where you then put in a group and you had to, by committee, build something, right? right? Yeah. Remember how hard it was? <laughs> group was always, projects. Everybody was hated the, them. There was always the slacker, someone <laughs> yep. who was there who wouldn't do any work. And, you know, and there's always the one who tried to take it all over. And then you had people who just hated each other. And you eventually <laughs> worked through it. And I think at the time that they did that, it was really more, we just need to teach you, teach people to work in teams because you're going to have to work in a team. Right, right? when you leave the university. You know? But really now, you don't really have to teach kids who've been playing, I don't even know the names of the games anymore. You know, I'm thinking Doom. Know. Doom was 30 years ago, right? But, I, mean, I don't have these, any idea what they're playing, know, Fortnite uh, or know, something. Um, <laughs> these kids get on, and my, my son, who's a 32-year-old kid, gets on <laughs> with the headphones, and they're playing games all the time. And they do it as a goof now, he's right. 30 year old. But, but these Gen Zs, they are playing globally with people in teams, problem solving and doing all sorts of things. And I think that one of the areas technology can help is let's sort of create a way 
to do peer-to-peer learning. The thing where students used to then go to the lecture and then go back to the, you know, be in a lecture with 300 people, then go with a TA in a class of 18 people, it's not even that way anymore. Let the TA set the deck on some work to do together, leave, and then you should be able to connect globally with 300 people, you know. You can learn anything nowadays, right? You're working with the, with the group. So I think that that's a really good area that technology helps. I think that an area where technology probably it gets in the way a little bit is that because of where we have learning management systems now, so I'm talking about your uh, your Sakai's or your Kalturas and all these things in the world, the framework is there and it works off of the basic syllabus and then you kind of work your way down. It's a good way to kind of do the checkboxes to see where you're going, but it doesn't allow you to jump around enough. And, you know, I think it's it's almost too structured. It's important in a way that you get a sense that we're, we're at this part in the semester and this person's in trouble they're behind we need to so it's good in that structural way so i I have a lot i understand what it does and how it ties with your sis system and your transcript that structure is good but then as you step in to a course and you look there's a curriculum there's curricula and you step into the different units and you're working through the things it doesn't allow you to get it, get it down granular, almost in a way like a Khan Academy. We yeah. can get down into the pedagogy and the building blocks. Let some AI that goes through it come back and, and color code and say, these are the areas you're weak and here's remediation you need to do on this, this, and this. Or here's a part of your network that you need to go to. Those are the things that technology should be doing, but where technology holds it back is it's not there yet. Part of the reason I think it's not there yet is that there's a bigger problem probably on the wish list at universities now, and that is that the world is realizing that higher ed is a bubble where for the last 20 years, the cost of education, it's been growing 2% faster in GDP for 20 years. So it's a bubble. So all of us who have loans, it's like the world is waking up. This is getting so expensive. So a lot of what's going on in technology now and universities is they're really trying to find ways to streamline, not do top line, how to go in and make the experience better. What's happening now is how do we make things more efficient? How do we start to get these costs under control? And to a degree, when you look at sort of a learning management system and how things work, it's what's the most economic way for if we can get a student through in three years instead of four years. They're thinking about optimizing those things and not really looking at the individual learning experience within each unit. That will happen later. That's sort of top line. Every business model goes to there's disruption going on now. We're fixing the bottom line. So we're fixing the the basically the the meat and potatoes of getting a student through as cheaply and efficiently as right. possible. But there's a lot of top line things that technology are not handling yet. I think they're we're getting there, but we're not there yet. How do you think that students are going to change in the future? How do you think universities are going to continue to change? What is what is it going to mean to be a global university or a global student? five years from now, 10 years from now? Well, I think that to be a, a, a global, first of all, what NYU did was building a giant mall in the sky. You're not going to see a lot of those because literally you need to cut a deal with the, you know, <laughs> so we cut a deal with the Ministry of Education in, in Beijing. Right. And we built this in <laughs> Shanghai and with the Emirates, you know, in Abu Dhabi. And it was a long period and it took people far more talented than I with vision to do that. And you need those kind of anchor partners to sort of do it the way we did it. Now, the way we did it obviously gives us an opportunity with the funding and the global networks we put in to do synchronous learning as well. So we could bring 
you know, we could bring London, Shanghai, New York together to do where the city meets the sea, where we can work together in real time on, geez, why are corals thriving in Dubai where forget about global warming, it's a bathtub there, the water, right. and forget <laughs> about building, we're building islands and everything, and the coral's great there, where it's just dying in, in Shanghai, right? It's great that you can do that synchronously, right. but I don't think that you're going to see a lot of universities on that model. It's a very expensive thing to do. It's great if you can do it. But I think what you're going to see is more students being able to get into universities that have a curriculum where the peer-to-peer piece is such that you form strong, basically, groups together. And it's going to be a way to facilitate some residency where you're going to be able to move around. The way we're doing it at NYU, we're taking really high-end, real esteemed faculty and convincing them to do three-year tours of duty around the world, which is wonderful that we can do that. Very difficult to do other places. I think other places, faculty are going to want to teach wherever they're comfortable they want to teach. They're going to do the big lectures. We're going to have to, as I said, figure out a better way to sit with them and a more efficient way to digitize everything and come up different modalities of learning. But that's where they're going to be. What I think we're going to have to do is be able to then flatten out the rest of the world where we have really good TAs who who can understand and really get the adaptive learning in the other branches and optimize at that level in an individualized way. And I think that students need to be able to network with one another and do peer-to-peer learning to work on different things, do remediation so they can catch up and stay on track. Right. So I think that that's going to be more of that. I think that it's it's not like some people say, well, we can do the distance learning in community colleges, maybe community colleges, which are so cheap are going to just do that and it's going to do away with the big universities. That's not going to happen either because the big universities, you know, having the great faculty, having the great alumni network there, and and there's just certain things that really happen in the intellectual life on the big campuses with the big universities. There's value there. They'll always get the uh, top students, you know, at both ends of the uh, economic stratus are going to come in. But then for the students who are sort of, not getting into that, you know, I think that you're going to see a much better way, more options in community yeah, colleges. Yeah, there's just going to be a, gonna, a lot of different paths you can take. Right. And then even if they don't have remediation in the way to keep you up, students are smart now. They're going to learn those tools. They're going to find the tools in their vertical that Khan Academy does K-12 that works for them to do digital post-edit. They're going to find the right communities. You know, if they're a developer, they're going to get on GitHub, join one of the hundreds of communities, and they're going to go to boot camp. They're going to do those things. So I'm really, I'm high on all of it. I think that the high-end institutions, universities, not a lot of them are going to do what NYU did because it's just too expensive yeah, to do. Yeah, <laughs> But I think that there's a lot of peer-to-peer learning and there's a lot of tools that are going to go out there. And then there's going to be a global, you know, there's going to be a global flow anyway. Maybe less about the faculty moving around, but why, why do you need them to move around? Yeah. You're going to look at the lecture. That's great. The learning is going to happen in smaller groups. You've done a lot, obviously. You've been very successful in tech, in education. What are you working on now? What's exciting you now? Like I said, you have to always be following your passion. I had a great passion, you know, going up to 9-11. My passion was I don't want to lose my house. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep the kids fed and all of that stuff. When I got way ahead of that, you know, I, I made the right move to go into higher ed. You know, at this point, I'm very fortunate. Both my son and my daughter have gone through NYU and other schools and have done well. So that piece is done. 
Interestingly enough, what I'm fascinated with now is the whole gig economy. I've had an opportunity to fall into one COO role for a big company doing AI and some things there. I'm interested in machine learning and AI and doing that, not just for adaptive learning, but in, in other areas. And I did some work there. That company is drifting more towards crypto, the world of crypto yeah. now and blockchain, which I'm less interested in, to be honest with you. So I'm actually back into the gig economy. <laughs> I've done some work with a couple of major universities, one doing a mobile platform. Another for-profit education companies approach me, so I'll probably do some work with them. So I think what I'm going to actually be doing, so what I'm going to probably be doing now is is seeing how well I can operate out of my house and out of LaGuardia Airport and do more domestic, less probably global. Although I spent a lot of time in Dubai the last two years yeah. helping one company get a distribution company going. I think I'm going to be doing more work, a lot of it in the higher ed vertical, but some of it just in applying a machine AI and machine learning into different verticals that I think are interesting plays on how we can harness those technologies. All in the it. education space or in different Most, spaces? Mostly education now mm -hmm. because there's some adaptive learning things, but maybe in a couple of others, which I don't really want to get into now because I'm still playing. There's still <laughs> concepts that I'm playing with. The short answer is I am an active member of the gig economy. I've I've turned down the 401k job <laughs> thing. I don't really, I don't, I'm not looking to go somewhere where I'm going to put another 15 years in. So I'm hopping around now and actually very happy doing it. You did the traditional education. You've helped kind of change how education is at NYU, different other schools. What is one kind of consistent truth, though, throughout education that you believe is true? I think that the biggest is that universities or anybody who's entrusted with the education has to find a way to help, to facilitate, to help students find what their true passion is and align the kind of building blocks that they need to fulfill that passion and understand at the end of the day, if you can do that and they, and they get out and they're happy doing what they're doing in the beginning, that's part of mission accomplished, part A. Part B is you need to give them the skills, the tools, the skills to be able to look inward, reassess at different points of your life. Again, looking at my life, which you've made me look at here over the last hour or so. <laughs> I was looking in saying, you know, how am I going to come up with $3,500 next month to pay the mortgage, you know? Very different than 10 years later when, you know, how am I going to give any kind of guidance, you know, besides writing big checks to private schools, you know, to my kids. It always changes. Now, when I got out of engineering school, while I was in engineering school, as a senior, I think it was Gene Roddenberry. It was this, there was a Star Trek convention <laughs> and Gene Roddenberry was there and all these Trekkies were there. And, and we went and he actually said that, you know, in, in, you know, in engineering, seven years from now, only one or excuse me, five years from now, only one out of seven of you will still be engineers. Wow. And it's hard after going three through four right. years of that. <laughs> Paying for this mean? whole education. You're like, you know, what? <laughs> but um, so I've been, I've been out, you know, 35 years and I probably have had four or five careers. I don't think it's unlikely that these Gen Zs, the kids are coming out now over 40 years, they could have 15 careers. And, wow. you know, yeah. that could be. So what you need to be able to do is, I think, when they're reflecting, you know, when they're 25, they'll be an old 25. They'll be yeah. on the second or maybe the third thing. They need to be able to say, well, back when I was, I was a different person when I was 19. This is what I really kind of wanted to do. And I took this, this, and this out of college. And I had all these soft skills and I got, I wormed my way in and I did this. You know, here's what's important to me now. So what are the tools that right. I need? I mean, it's a hackneyed term, this term of lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. But lifelong learning now isn't just jumping into a boot camp or going to a MOOC and taking a thing. Lifelong learning is 
having social networks where you can basically call it down to the people you know that can you really trust that what you're getting back will help bring you to the right place. And also to be able to get in and experiment and say, I have a passion for this. Let's get in there. Let's do a quick experiment. I might decide I hate this. Yeah. So let's make this a three-month experiment with a few all-nighters in there instead of spending a year going out and getting a job and right. saying, you should do 15 jobs, not because it turns out that you threw away eight of them because you hated them. Maybe, you know, you should be because 15 jobs because you you changed. You know, right. You, you, you love them all at times. one time and then That's you change. That's exactly right. Now, maybe you won't go 15 for 15, mm -hmm. but let's let's hope for 12 out of 15, right? And <laughs> yeah. Maybe, Solid so, batting average. It's the old lifelong learning thing, but it's not really. It's it's not just, you know, being inquisitive and reading books and reading blogs and all of that. It's really having the tools that you need that you can really adapt and be agile and keep moving around. And if you do that, I think you'll be a happier person and you'll be more productive. And as the other hackney term, you're never really working for a living, right? You're doing <laughs> yeah. what you love. But there's actually some truth to all of that. I think so. Okay, we always end every interview with a lightning round. So just uh -oh. some quick questions. Wait a second, a lightning <laughs> round, okay. What's your favorite book that you've read lately? Favorite book? Actually, this is really weird. I've been doing a lot of sailing lately. Okay. So I, I read a, a book and I'm trying to remember the title because I just put it down. But it's, a, <laughs> it's a book by E.J. Gardner and it's all about sailing on the coast of Maine. So it's oh, very wow. interesting. Nice. It's all about sailing, but it was sailing back in the days when they didn't have GPS they didn't even have Loran then. So basically, they were listening audibly on, on you know, this is a long lightning round, I'm sorry. No, go but for sailing it. <laughs> in the fog without without charts, well, maybe with charts, but without, you know, yeah, dead like you reckoning. You don't even have a stuff. sun or anything to follow. Yeah, yeah. So that's crazy. Uh, that, 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 that's what I'm, I'm reading there. I, I would say on, on the tech end, I continue to read a lot of AI and, and BI things. Actually, a lot of smaller pieces in terms of frameworks for Android and iOS development. So there's a, there's a number of bootcamp things that have gone on to really good Udacity type of courses. Yeah. So I'm starting to jump in and read all of those types of things. Very cool. So that's cool. Are you a music guy? What do you like to listen to? What's on your go-to playlist? My go-to playlist? You know, I have the weirdest eclectic <laughs> thing. So the last week or two, my wife and I have been listening to Queen because we're getting nice. ready for, for, Bohemian, the, for Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yep. <laughs> That's kind of a flashback. I like Americana. So you get some Gillian Welsh I love. Yeah, nice. uh, you know, that's it, but totally the other end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> and just a lot of different, I, I can't even, you know, that's a, I guess you, I guess you don't tell the, your, your people that you're doing a lightning round no, before. You gotta, no, you gotta so, hit them with it. <laughs> you gotta hit them with it. Bang. No, I, I would say that uh, that's what jumps out at me now, but you know, a number of other things. I've always been a big Neil Young fan, but nothing new coming out lately, but every once in a while, something new comes out of the vault and that gets me very excited. <laughs> I don't know about all the new stuff. I'm not really, um, I'm not up on all the new The artists. new ones. Yeah. What is your favorite, your guilty pleasure? You just fed me some key lime pie, which was delicious. But what do you, uh, what do you like to snack on? Well, I had cheesecake yeah. with graham cracker <laughs> crust. That actually is one of my guilty pleasures. Nice. That may be at the top of the list. You know, I almost went back for a second piece, but you kind of gave me, threw me a look, so I didn't. <laughs> no, I'm I just kidding. <laughs> okay, what about? Do you like different shows, movies? You mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody. Are you a movie guy? I'm not really a big movie guy. You know what the thing is with movies is I I spent 15 years of my life just flying. I was 75% yeah. on the road, so I watched everything on the planes. Oh my god, right? yeah. <laughs> I tend to be 
I like spy things, uh-huh. and, you know, and I like action. Yeah, so, kind of thrillers, know. that kind so of thing. Like, so, like, I've never watched The Americans, so I started binge-watching that, and okay. there's about 90 of them. So that's, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of seasons of that. I think it just yeah. ended, so they're yeah. not making any new ones, at least. Yeah, thank God for me. <laughs> so, and I watched the whole uh, Jack Ryan, the, 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 oh, nice. the, the yeah, Tom yeah. Clancy. I was a big Tom Clancy back in the day okay. when he wrote his own books. Right. Big Tom Clancy fan. So I, I actually had to zip my way through that. So I, I kind of am more on the political thriller type of stuff. And I, I don't mind a little bit of dumb action thrown in sure, as well. Why not? And last question, what is the best piece of advice you have or the best piece of advice you've ever been given that you might want to impart on the listeners? So I've heard of a lot of good one, but I, I think we need to end with one that's sort of one that everyone's heard before. And it sounds like a toss away, but it, and it's kind of hackneyed. You know, I've heard this my whole life, but the fact that you're, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> and uh, I think that the root of everything, whether you're building the tools to be agile and follow, basically following your passion at any given situation, you're going to be thrown into a new situation. You're always, you're going to reinvent yourself. If I reinvented myself six times, the Gen Z's coming out are going to reinvent themselves 15 times. Right. You're always going to be thrown into the deep end of the pool. And the best thing to do there is if you get a little bit nervous and sort of, you know, you're just a little bit worried and you want to kind of start to talk about everything you know about to kind of feel better. Right. Just Fill the it. void. Yeah. Listen, listen. And if you listen long enough and if you listen with empathy, People will open up to you and tell you what's going wrong or what needs to be fixed. And then you'll have all those tools. And, you know, if you're on your 13th job, you'll have great experiences applying what you know. Not only what you know, but that cool network of peer-to-peer learners you know, you'll, you'll be one step or two hops away from providing tremendous value. And that's what the value is. It's really not the technology or the experience or taking a pattern of something you've built before and putting it in. That's all cool stuff and it has a shelf life. But what it is, is being able to listen, understand the essence of what it is that needs to be fixed, bringing the right thing in and doing that. It's this human connection and the problem solving. And I think that's really it. But it starts with listening. Two yeah. ears, one mouth. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, this it was, was a great. pleasure. It was Thank a pleasure. you. Appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. More pie.